Big Dumb Movie is a comedic podcast that often contains obscene language and outlandish commentary. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Big Dumb Movie, where we discuss movies of the Big Dumb variety. I'm your host, Corey, and I'm joined with two of my friends today, Steve. Good day. And Josh. How's it going, everybody? It's going really well. Steve. Sir. What's your favorite John Carpenter movie outside of Big Trouble Little China? Ooh, God, that's a loaded question. It I really mean, the, is. Th- the thing in Escape from New York are really also on my list of absolute favorites. The thing is so brilliant. God, that's good. Well, you got to pick one, and we're going to go one that's not Big Trouble. So if you just have to pick one of them. If I, if I were really backed into a corner where I had to make one of them my favorite and I wasn't allowed to tie multiple John Carpenter films, I'd, I'd probably go with The Thing. But man, there's, there's several others that are big contenders. Like uh, Vampires, right? Well, yeah, I mean, clearly that's his best work. <laughs> Josh, what's your favorite and why is it Ghosts of Mars? Because <laughs> of Ice Cube, clearly. Look, Ghosts of Mars is almost unwatchable. <laughs> yeah. It's borderline unwatchable. I, I gotta echo Steve though. The thing is so, so fucking good. It's tier. It's top tier level yeah. horror and John Carpenter. It, it it manages to be top tier, top shelf, A level sci fi and horror at the same time. It's fucking brilliant. It's one of my favorite films ever made. Yeah, absolutely. I was looking at his resume and I realized I haven't seen that many of his movies. Yeah. So I just picked Village of the Damned for mine because <laughs> I was like, I've seen that one. Uh, well, you know, I, I eventually I want to do I, Josh, I don't know if you know this one. Eventually I want to do um, Prince of Darkness. A oh, podcast. You mean. Yeah, podcast. I love Prince of Darkness. Right. Me too. I love that. It's another one of my John Carpenter favorites. It's a really strange movie. And uh, Into the Mouth of Madness is kind of an interesting one as well. Oh, I love that when one When we do too. Prince of Darkness, then we'll have the same lineup. That way you guys can share your your love of it. I haven't seen it, so I, oh, I'd like man. to do that. Yeah, that's definitely a Halloween film. <laughs> I tried to get Corey to do it for Halloween like two years ago, and I was told it wasn't Halloween-y enough. Ooh. What? I didn't say that. Yes, you did. did. I? I did. <laughs> you Speaking did. of John Carpenter and Halloween, I mean, Halloween, right? Well, Halloween, yeah, obviously. The original Halloween basically invented the slasher pick. I mean, you can, you can thank him. You can thank John Carpenter for all of the best and all of the worst horror films of the 1980s, at least a huge percentage of them. <laughs> but wait, is this episode about Big Trouble in Little China? Because I watched Legally Blonde too. <laughs> Surprise, bitches. We're doing a podcast on Legally Blonde, too. <laughs> Red, white, and blonde? Right. I thought you were going to ask me what my favorite Reese Witherspoon movie is. I don't know what's happening right now. American Psycho. Ooh, it's a good one. Sweet Home Alabama. <laughs> no, Josh. Reconsider that answer. He lives in Alabama. Give him a break. Ah. <laughs> uh. I just imagine that song is playing everywhere you go all the time. That and Freebird. I figure those two songs are just on all the radio stations all the time. They do. There's like a, a radio station that just 24 hour seven streams those songs. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think like in Alabama, like if you're pulling up somewhere in your truck with the windows down and the volumes crank really loud playing Sweet Home Alabama, everyone's like unimpressed. Like we've already heard that song a million times, <laughs> shithead. Nobody bats an eyelash. It's everyday life. 
you know what? Honestly, I, I don't, I'm not being shitty toward either place. I'm just commenting that I'm thinking about it. Given how popular pickup trucks and country music are in Simi Valley, I bet a lot of the most popular songs here are the most popular songs there, too. Yeah, it sucks. <laughs> oh, probably. <laughs> right? <laughs> but we're here to talk about Big Trouble, Little China. Yes. Which is a movie that was requested by a listener on YouTube. And this me is, many times. This is for Izzy Kissa. Thank you for requesting this movie. Thank you, Izzy. I love doing fan requests. It's awesome. Josh, what's your experience with Big Trouble Little China? Oh, very early on when I was a kid, my dad show, uh, played this movie for me. And instantly I gravitated towards just how bizarre this movie was, how fucking fantastical everything was. Uh, this movie is so good. Yeah. Steve, what about you? Did you grow up on this? I'm sure you did. Yeah, oddly, almost exactly the same thing. My my father had a, a collection of stuff on VHS that he – some of which he bought, some of which he taped off movie channels in the middle late 80s. And at some time around 92, 91, 92, I, I can remember him just sort of handing me a bunch of VHS tapes. I still remember what several of them were. One of them was this. He, it, he just just saying, you'll like these. Here you go. And I had a TV and a VCR in my in my bedroom. And were they all eighties movies? A lot of them were like that was I, I watched this film in Blade Runner for the first time that way. For instance, one of them was a really fun eighties movie that almost no one remembers called Time Rider: The Adventures of Lyle Swan, um, which that it really is a fun movie, but a very B production. And uh, and yeah, yeah, it was a bunch of eighties stuff. Awesome. Yeah. I like to. I I just created my own mental list of what was in there, like RoboCop, The Goonies, right. Adventures in Babysitting. Yeah, Adventures in Babysitting, my mom actually introduced me to. She saw it before I did on a cable channel and, and was like, you guys, my, to my brother and I, she was like, you'll love this. We saw it, yeah. I, I love Anthony Rapp, dude. He's, yeah. he, I love that man. Absolutely. Big fan of Rent. I've talked about that before. <laughs> and he's on Star Trek Discovery and you know me, big big Trekkie. Right. Are, are you? I hadn't heard that. <laughs> I became obsessed with this movie basically at the moment I saw it. Like I, I it, it became a staple in our house. It, it then became one of my brother's favorite films. I think we must have owned five or six separate copies of this on various home video formats. Yeah. Well, it's time for my controversial take. I saw this movie for the first time as an adult around somewhere around 2014, 2015. I didn't grow up on Big Trouble in Little China. I saw it then, did not like it. You're the only person I've ever met who could watch this movie drunk and not like it. Seriously. <laughs> Here's the thing, dude. People know I, I am an alcoholic. The listeners probably know that. I don't drink anymore. But at the time, it was really bad. And I was a man. I was a desperate man, Steve. I was at the end of my rope. And honestly, this is going to sound weird, but the only things that comforted me at the time were things I was either super nostalgic for or things that were extremely depressing. No, I, I understand. So Absolutely. this uh, didn't do it for me at the time. Right. Good news, though. I rewatched it again for the first time in many years last night. And I do like this movie. It's really good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Thank I'm so, so, so nervous that your first like like post-original viewing of it not being in a theater would impact it negatively. I'm so glad that you enjoyed yourself. Yeah. I did enjoy myself. <laughs> Critics liked this movie at the time it came out, but it did flop. Yeah, it's a really, really strange thing. There's a lot of other background, but like, yeah. Oh, wait, wait. Let me ask the question. Steve, how the hell was this movie, movie made? made? All right, we'll start there. The The original screenplay was written by two guys named Gary Goldman and David Weinstein. Goldman, had, at, at some point, this is all coming from stuff he said in an interview that I watched last night. 
Goldman at some point was looking through old catalogs for a uh, film festival that used to be held here in Los Angeles called Filmex. And um, he noticed in in the catalog a listing for a movie he'd never heard of called The Butterfly Movies, which is a, a Chinese film mixed sci-fi and kung fu and history all into one movie, which is actually fairly common in, in some Chinese cinema. Like a year later, he was in Cannes for the film festival and accidentally happened across a screening of the movie at some tiny little one auditorium theater in Cannes. So he went and saw it. Turned out the movie was in, I think, Cantonese and had no subtitles, so he couldn't understand any of the story while he was watching it. But he fell in love with it and thought that the idea of doing something like that, but with a more American Hollywood style, might be appealing to to an American audience. So he got together with his writing partner, David Weinstein, and they started doing all this other background research. Uh, Apparently they spent a lot of time watching Westerns and samurai films and other Chinese cinema, but um, they also did a lot of research into what were called the Tong Wars, which really happened during the late 1800s and early 1900s. They were a series of conflicts between groups of Chinese immigrants in San Francisco. There was a large population of them there at the time for various reasons. The Fighting Tong? A Fighting Tong? Um, the Fighting Tong? Yeah, well, the word Tong in either Mandarin or Cantonese apparently is, is the equivalent of, like, clubhouse or group, um, like, a, like a group that requires membership. Right, and like so, a club, like like a motorcycle club, like that kind of. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, like yeah. a gang. And, and you know, in some cases, they weren't really founded to be gangs, but they sort of became. It's sort of like like the Yakuza was originally founded as like a union for fishermen, and then it turned into what it what it is. <laughs> like so, they they kind of evolved. But yeah, you know, I think in some cases these, these these new immigrants would get together here in the U.S. and they kind of realized that they needed each other and that would turn into conflicts with other groups but yeah it was a real thing and so they they pulled a lot of inspiration from that so they wrote a script that was originally a western it was set in the mid to late 1800s sometime relatively near the gold rush when san francisco was still a pretty new city and the story was going to be about a cowboy named wiley prescott whose business was selling meat and other goods to the guys who worked on the railroad and Wiley was going to ride into San Francisco on horseback following Chinese immigrants who were working on the railroad um, just because that's that's where he was doing business. And the story was going to kind of take off from there. And at the beginning of this film, they're playing Pai Gao in, in, in the original script. Wiley got involved with a group of Chinese guys after after a bet that he could shoot the eyes out of a painted tiger on a kite. Um, in any case, uh, Weinstein and uh, and Goldman wrote this script together and tried to get it sold and Goldman was getting married about the same time and it's kind of a funny side note and he his father-in-law didn't think he'd be able to sell the script so he made an agreement with his father-in-law that he'd go to law school if he couldn't sell the movie and like three weeks later something like that he ended up getting getting the script sold to a dude named Paul Monash 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 I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his last name still he was a real famous producer for a long time Monash took the script had them polish it a little bit, tried to find a director, couldn't find a director. So at this point, the writers are sort of not really involved while the production company that bought the script from them tries to find a buyer for it. 
but Goldman had previously worked with a guy named Lawrence Gordon, who's a producer. Gordon has had a huge career. He's still around today. He did the first two Predator movies. He did the first two Die Hard movies. He did Point Break with Keanu Reeves. He did Boogie Nights. He did the 2001 version of Tomb Raider. His, his resume's got about 80 movies on it. Gordon, somehow, Lawrence Gordon somehow had seen this script before it got sold. And he called Goldstein back into his office and said, I liked that script you wrote. I would have bought it from you. Um, why don't you write something else for me? And before that could happen, Gordon got made the head of 20th Century Fox. And he knew that the people that Goldman and Weinstein had sold the script to were having trouble finding a director. So Lawrence Gordon came in with 20th Century Fox and said, we'll just buy this project from you. And that's what happened. But they, they continued to have issues finding people who were interested in being involved with it. So they decided to rewrite and they brought in a writer named, named um, W.D. Richter. Richter has had a pretty big career of his own. He worked as a director and a writer. Um, he directed Buckaroo Banzai, which is another fantastic movie. That, that is on our podcast list. It is on our podcast list. So he came in and started rewriting the script. It was his idea mostly to move the setting into modern-day San Francisco. I don't entirely agree with him, but he contended that trying to combine elements of sci-fi, mysticism, and Western into one film wasn't going to work for them, and that they needed to set it in modern San Francisco in order to get audiences attached enough to want to pay attention. <clears throat> so he moved it into the future. He was the one who brought John Carpenter in because the two of them knew each other from other stuff. And... Um, they finished the script together, at least the bulk of it, and then Carpenter went on to, to cast and to direct. I, I want to take one step backwards, though, onto uh, uh, Goldman, who was one of the writers. Like I said, he, he told his father-in-law, I'll enroll in law school if I can't sell this film, but he ended up having a fantastic, or at least for a brief period, fantastic career after this. His next big project after Big Trouble in Little China was writing the script for Total Recall. Or actually, not all of it. He brought it, he got brought in to do revisions, and then he and one of the writers from Total Recall actually wrote a script for Minority Report that never got used. But when they did eventually make the the Minority Report with Tom Cruise, some of Goldman's stuff made it into the film. But yeah, in any case, that's kind of how, where it got started, and then it got complicated from there because they found out after production had started that Eddie Murphy was doing a movie called The Golden Child. And they're not really very similar, but they both involve a lot of like Far Eastern Asian mysticism. And Fox got concerned that if they tried to release this movie up against something with Eddie Murphy in it that had similar themes, that they would just get crushed. So they forced Carpenter to make the movie on a really compressed shooting schedule in order to um, to get it out at a certain time. And I've, I've got this theory that the movie may have been even better than it was if that hadn't been the case because there's stuff they trimmed out. But uh and uh, that's that's basically the story of how it got made, at least. I mean, the movie had a pretty decent budget for the time. Twenty to twenty-five million is what's yeah, is what people think it was made for. And Carpenter says that it was supposed to be more. He he originally was going to have almost double that amount and several additional weeks worth of production time, and then it got taken away from him. Uh, the theory is that the the reason it flopped because it had great test screenings, good reviews. Uh, the reason it flopped is because the marketing campaign was not very strong for it. Yeah, they didn't really know how to market it, partly. They, they, they weren't really sure. The executives at the studio obviously did not get it. When Carpenter first showed the partially completed work print cuts of this movie to the studio execs, they didn't like it. 
they they thought they were going to get something where we'll talk about this more, but they thought they were going to get something where the Jack Burton character was like John Wayne and was the big hero. And instead, what they got was a story about a hero who's a good guy, but is also kind of a bumbling, big mouthed idiot. And it's really the, the sidekick character that ends up doing most of the real work. Which was, which is one of the big points. It's really the the Asian sidekick in this film that, that that's the actual hero, and Burton's kind of his sidekick. Yeah. But yeah, and they they actually forced. There's a scene at the beginning. We'll talk about in a minute where where Aig Shen is in a lawyer's office. That scene wasn't in the original script. Uh, the studio executives forced Carpenter to add it because they wanted dialogue talking about how big hero Jack Burton was. They they really that they, they didn't. Understand. So when they went to market it, they didn't know what the fuck to do with it, and they didn't really like it that much. And the Carpenter said at the time. They didn't know as much about how to market movies properly, and they had some. They had a three million dollar budget for marketing, which on a twenty five million dollar movie at that point was not enough. Um, yeah, so big, big mess. But yeah, test audiences loved it. Critics liked it. Kurt Russell tells a story in some of the supplemental inform- uh, material where after one of the press screenings, a critic came up to him and literally said something to the effect of, "How does it feel to know you're going to be one of the biggest stars in the world when this movie comes out?" And and it didn't end up happening. <laughs> Eventually, he got there. Right. Yeah, it's funny. At this point, he was still mostly known for having been in Disney films as a kid. And his his adult career hadn't really fully taken off yet, even though he'd been in other big movies. Two years after this, he was in a movie with Mel Gibson called Tequila Sunrise, and that's the film he credits with really taking him. But yeah. Yeah, based on the classic Cypress Hill song. Wasn't uh, Walt Disney's Dying Words Kurt Russell? Oh shit! I haven't heard that story, but maybe <laughs> it was right right before they put his head in the cryogenic storage. Yes, <laughs> no, it was Rosebud, <laughs> right? No, that's William Hurst. <laughs> Let's dive into Big Trouble in Little China, the movie itself. Josh, why don't you tell us about like how it kicks off and just give as much of the intro as you want. All right, so uh, the movie opens with Egg Shen meeting with his lawyer, talking about the events of the movie. Uh, he shows him a sweet fucking lightning show. <laughs> and, it, like, I, guess, I don't know. Like, I guess uh, he begins to tell the story, which folds into the movie. But we never come back to this scene, even towards the end of the movie. Yeah, and it's as, a, it's as a result of it having been shoved in. Because, like I said, the studio execs were the ones that asked for it. It wasn't originally in the script. None of them apparently thought, if we put this scene in the beginning, there should probably be a follow-up to it later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely feels shoehorned. <laughs> right, and, and, and Carpenter will, will say that. He's, in fact, I, I'm pretty sure Carpenter, in the material for the most recent video release, basically says that this this scene is pointless bullshit. And that he still hates it, that never wanted it in the movie. Right. <laughs> Can't say that I blame him. Uh, uh, very early on, we're introduced to Jack Burton and the Porkchop Express. This whole opening is so fucking 80s, right? It, I, it is, but I love it. And it does such a perfect job of establishing who Jack is. Like yes. you, you get to know Jack, everything you need to know about him in the first 45 seconds you're with him. It's it's awesome. What's he talking about in that like truck radio really really nothing yeah life life he just he just likes to ramble about his views on life into the rate into the cb for whoever else sees it just listen to the old pork chop express and take his advice on a dark and stormy night all right when some wild-eyed eight-foot-tall maniac grabs your neck taps the back of your favorite head up against a barroom wall and he looks at crooked in the eye and he asks you if you've paid your dues well, you just stare that big sucker right back in the eye, and you remember what old Jack Burton always says at a time like that. Have you paid your dues, Jack? 
Yes, sir, the check is in the mail. It's like a talk show radio just for him, or I guess. I don't know. Do you think there's like other truckers on the other end? Like, God damn, shut the fuck up, bro. Probably. <laughs> or like people on the other end of the spectrum, like, man, I could hear this guy talk more and more. Now, right. Victor Wong plays Egg Shen, and uh, some listeners <laughs> might know him better as Mori Tanaka from Three Ninjas, or Mori mm-hmm. Shintaro, depending on which Three Ninjas movie you watch. And it was the reverse for me, because when I saw Three Ninjas for the first time, I'm like, it's the guy from Big Trouble Little China! Same! Yeah, <laughs> yeah I watched it, I was like, it's Grandpa Action. Right! So a lot of my references are going to be kind of backwards in that way, because <laughs> I saw this movie later than everything. Corey, do you think that they would have had an easier time beating Lopan if Tum Tum had been with them? Yes. Oh, <laughs> dude, Lopan would have slipped on some jelly beans. Yeah. <laughs> Slip a little jelly bean in his gin and tonic. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, we do get to meet Jack Burton, and uh, he's a trucker. He's hanging out in Chinatown in San Francisco. He's got a group of friends. They just kind of like to gamble, drink, and hang out. Well, I don't know. Like, maybe we can talk more about Jack Burton. I mean, how would you describe him, Josh? The character, I would say, yeah, a bumbling buffoon. With the kind of, uh, he kind of carries himself like he is this overly confident, like, action hero. Like, I can do all this kind of crazy shit. And he's kind of a fucking idiot. But that's what makes him charming. Kurt Russell's doing an obvious John Wayne impression. May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. We get introduced to him gambling with Wang. And we get some camaraderie, see that they're old, good friends. Quits? What is this? It's a brand new day and a man still got a hundred bucks in his pocket. What is this? I'm not going to complain because I'll bet I'd have lost my shirt in the next 20 minutes. Ah, well, it breaks my heart to do this, Wang, but I figure next time I'm down here, you just gang up on poor old Jack so fast, he won't know what the hell happened. No. Ah, sure. Easy come, easy go, huh, Wang? No! I think he thinks he's cooler than he is, but, like, uh, whatever. Like, people like, they like him anyway, you know? Yeah. Russell based this performance on John Wayne and his performance in Escape from New York on Clint Eastwood. They were literally like who he was kind of, he was aiming to spoof the two of them for those parts. (laughs) That's cool. (laughs) Right. And there's a rumor, there's a rumor that uh, the studio actually wanted either Jack Nicholson or Clint Eastwood to play the Jack part. But uh, Nicholson, yeah, which would have been a horrible idea. (laughs) You know, but Carpenter, I think, wanted Russell from day one. They'd already worked on, um, on uh, Escape from New York and, and Elvis, the Elvis movie with each other. In fact, this was second to last of five five films they made together. And Dean Cundey as well. Dean Cundey was a cinematographer on this. He did, he worked on several of those and said a bunch of other stuff. So our two main characters are Jack Burton, Kurt Russell, and his friend Wang, played by a guy called Dennis Dunn. And Steve, <laughs> uh, they have to go to the airport, pick up an old friend, right? Yeah, well, so yeah, Jack has been playing Pie Gal with them all night. He's been kicking he's been kicking Wang Chi's butt. And because Wang Chi loses a silly bet to him, Jack is now owed over two thousand dollars. And Wang Just a Wang, poor Chinese boy, you know? <laughs> you own a restaurant, it's a hell of a lot more than me. Um so, so you know, Wang suddenly says, "Well, you know, I don't have that kind of money on me, but I'll give it to you later." And Jack is like, "Bullshit! I'm going wherever you're going until I get paid." 
And and so it turns out that Wang has to go to the airport. He's like Misty from Pokemon for those <laughs> right? for those younger generations. Oh, <laughs> uh, right. So yeah, he, he, they two of them go to do uh, go to SFO together uh, to pick up a woman who uh, Wang she is, is waiting for. It turns out she's his fiance. She's coming in from China. He's been waiting to bring her over for years. Uh, he tells a story about how when he first got to the U.S., he was so poor. He literally just slept on a floor in a room full of other people. And then he's been saving his money and he got the restaurant open and stuff just so that he could bring her over. And um, there's a few deleted odds and ends in the movie where their relationships expanded on a little bit. But mm. yeah. He casually mentions the fact that she uh, has green eyes, which is super fucking rare for Chinese people. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, apparently there was, rumor has it, there was a moment when the studio was... Uh, or Carpenter, one of the two, actually wanted Jackie Chan to play that part. And he was still, at that point, mostly known for, for doing old-style kung fu films. And uh, apparently they, they nixed him because uh, one of the producers didn't didn't like his accent. They didn't think he spoke clearly enough. But Dennis Dunn, Josh, you probably recall, was also in Prince of Darkness, another oh, Carpenter man. movie. Yes, I, I love his performance in Prince of Darkness. He's so good. He really is. He's a real actor. He's done a lot of theater and a whole bunch of other stuff. He hasn't done a whole lot of other high-profile movies, but he's, he's worked quite a bit. Are you yeah. suggesting Warriors of Virtue isn't high uh, production value? <laughs> right. Well, it's you not know, art. He was, he was in The Last Emperor, and that movie's beautiful. It's an incredible film. Don't just gloss over Warriors of Virtue like that, dog. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't know if that's in Steve's wheelhouse, but it's like right. ninja kangaroos. So oh, Absolutely. <laughs> There's also a rumor that um, Kurt Russell got offered the Connor McCloud part in the first Highlander, and that he turned it down to do this. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't blame him for that one. I don't want to hear him doing a Scottish accent. No, well, but, okay, I, I'm just real quick tangent. How ridiculous is this movie that they cast a guy with basically a French accent to play a Scot, and then they cast a Scot to play his half-Egyptian, half-Spanish partner? You got a problem with that? You mean that movie, not yeah. this movie? Yeah, yeah, in the other one, in Highlander. Like, is, is, like you, get, you got Sean Connery, an actual Scottish guy, playing a character who was not Scottish, and you've got... No, my God, his name. What's his name? Raiden. Uh, Christopher Lambert. Yeah, thank you. Christopher Lambert, I.K. Raiden. Raiden, uh, that's the tie-in to this movie. It actually is because they based the character of Raiden on the lightning character from this film. Yes. Honest to God. Yeah. That is a true fact. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but uh, I guess Russell almost turned the part down because the last few movies he'd been in before this were flops. And he went to Carpenter and said, I don't think you want me in this. No one wants to see me in anything. <laughs> everyone hates me right, everyone hates me <laughs> and it's really weird to think about that like Escape from New York which I also think should be a pod is, is a cult classic now just like this movie is but nobody nobody knew Steve let's meet in the middle here and do Escape from LA <laughs> no can we at least do the better one can we do both look Escape from LA is a lot of fun but New York is way better we'll have to talk off air about that <sighs> alright so at the airport Wang and Jack Burton, they're going to pick up the girl, Malian, but they're intercepted by the Lords of Death. What? Lords of Death, street gang, punks from Chinatown. This isn't good. What are they doing here? Who dress like the uh, Biff's henchmen from Back to the Future 2 <laughs> with silly glasses and all. <laughs> yeah, we should probably mention this is long enough ago that you could still walk into an airport without needing a ticket. Right. <laughs> the editing and momentum of this whole scene is so fucking good. It is. 
it, the whole the whole thing is fantastic. Josh, can you expand on that? Like, what kind of plays out? So, it's a lot happening very quickly, but Jack is eyeing Gracie Law. Wang is uh, trying to look for Miao Yin. What's her name? Uh, Sex in the City? Gracie. Kim, Kim Cattrall is her real name, but yeah. <laughs> Gracie Law is looking for some random Asian girl. Tara. And meanwhile, the Lords of Death are eyeballing all of these characters, trying to size up the situation. At one point, they grab uh, Gracie Law's friend. Jack steps over there to, to rescue her, and they <laughs> pull out, like, a switchblade and some kind of other, like, baton or something like that. And there's a great moment where he's like, what? Where, where'd you get that? You and me have a little talk, friend. What? Yeah! Where'd you get that? Yes, his reaction. He's like, where did that come from? Like, I can't do it exactly the way he did it, but his reaction is so perfect. It's fantastic. Oh. And I like how you guys said this, like, pre-9-11 era where, like, they have all these weapons in the airport. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, that's a bit unrealistic. They did have metal detectors in airports in 1986, but it's okay. But they'd probably let you slide, you know? Yeah, you could bring a few weapons in. Slide in with a revolver. <laughs> you know, but yeah, I mean, in, uh, Jack's conversation with Gracie when he first meets her is fantastic. Yes. Can I ask you a serious question? Absolutely not. Well, then would you ever consider just jumping right into Sure, but never with a person in your condition. Well, let's talk about my condition, just what's wrong with it. You should try standing down when I am. Miller time. You know what I say when it's Miller time. The dialogue in this entire movie is so good. It is. It really is. <laughs> I, I gotta say, though, that being said, Josh, I'm not a super fan of the way Gracie delivers much of her lines. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Don't panic. It's only me, Gracie Law. There, that, that, that's been one of my only real issues. There's a couple of moments where I'm like, eh, I wish Carpenter had made her do that differently. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure she's a fine actress, but you know, when, yeah. when you're told to do something a certain way, you do it. Yeah, exactly. And he, he talks a lot over the years about how he liked working with Kim, that she was enjoyable. He was impressed with her ability to rattle off lots of dialogue very quickly. Although apparently W.D. Richter, the writer, did not like her very much. And it actually – I don't think there were any big fights that I'm aware of. But it did put her off. There was a, apparently a moment where she went to Carpenter sort of teary-eyed and said, I don't understand what I'm doing wrong and he doesn't like me and blah. And it became sort of an issue. Huh. Like, hmm. Well, where this takes us is um, back into Chinatown because – the Lords of Death, the local Asian gang that... Sounds like an awesome metal band, right? It does. <laughs> it's very 80s, I gotta say that. <laughs> uh, they take Mao Yin, and, and they they get out of there. They they put her in whatever fast car they have, and they're they're really hauling ass out of that parking structure, aren't they, Steve? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a late 80s Trans Am. Yeah, they, they originally actually intend... It turns out, you find out later on, the Lords of Death have no idea who either of these girls are. They're just literally looking for a girl to take. But they originally go after Tara, the girl that Gracie's waiting for. And then when Jack gets in their way, they grab Mao Yen and run off with her on their Trans Am. Yep. So our heroes, they got to go find them and rescue them. Fortunately, Wang kind of knows like whereabouts they hang out in Chinatown. And these two guys, being the confident men that they are, they're like, all right, we're just going to go. We're going to confront this gang, rescue them somehow. They don't have, like, a super clear plan. They're just, like, they're angry and they're ready to get her back. Son of a bitch must pay. 
right? Son of a bitch must pay. Wang Chi knows where they hang out, and he tells he tells Jack that we can go and try to get her back. Yeah. Josh, why don't you tell us about like where that kind of takes our heroes in Chinatown? A, a pretty fun moment, a memorable moment, I think, happens. This is one of my favorite scenes of the whole movie. <laughs> Me too. When they arrive in Chinatown... Jack is very clearly out of his element, very uh, much outside of his comfort zone. And very early on, we get a like a funeral for some kind of Chinese gang that Jack has no business knowing about. It doesn't give a shit. But Wang tells him to just chill out. You know, these are good guys. He tells the audience, these are good guys. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I've seen that review dude episode. <laughs> the Chang Sing, the good guys. Yeah. And then uh, the Singdings totally have uh, some <laughs> enemies called uh, the Wing Kong with red turbans. And they, they're just not happy about this funeral. And they, they make that pretty known. Yeah. I mean, so the heroes, they stumble upon a, a gang war that kind of just like erupts. There's the good guys. And the bad guys, and you can kind of tell by the colors. They're like the gold guys that wear a lot of gold geese and stuff, but then the red and black. you got to be paying a bit of attention to get it. There's also a little bit of deleted dialogue I think they should have left in of Wang sort of better explaining what's going on. But you, you get a lot of the detail later when they're in the restaurant. But yeah, the, the Chang Sings, the good guys, are having a funeral procession for the, the recently assassinated leader of their group. And apparently that man was assassinated, according to Wang Chi and his friend Eddie, that man was assassinated by the Wing Kong on behalf of Lopan, David Lopan, who's this mysterious guy we don't know anything about yet. They call him the godfather of little China. Yeah, and that the reason the fight broke out at the funeral is because Lopan and the Wing Kong specifically told these guys, you're not even allowed to have a funeral for this guy. If you have a funeral for him, we're going to fuck the funeral up. And that's exactly what happened. I see. Yeah. The way the action plays out is is structured pretty well, I think, because the quote-unquote bad guys, the Wing Kong, they show up with guns, and they just start shooting at him. Yeah, they show up with guns and a white guy. Right? They do have one white guy on there. They got Riker. <laughs> they got William Riker on their team. <laughs> but <laughs> He's got a beard. But... Uh, First, they shoot at our uh, good group of guys until they run out of ammo, and then it just becomes a fucking street brawl right. with melee weapons. Right. Steve, how good is that? It's so it's so good, and they constructed this... Most of what you see in this film is actually on, a, on partially indoor, partially outdoor sets, and they constructed that alleyway and, and really drove the truck into it. it the whole setup is so good. And like it, Anyone who's never been to San Francisco Chinatown... If you're at all interested, go. Because even though the buildings in this are fake a lot of the time, they manage to capture... There really is this kind of odd, sort of different world feeling when you're in the middle of Chinatown, and they really embrace it there. You really feel like all you had to do was turn off this main street into this alley, and like all of a sudden you're not really in San Francisco anymore, which is great. And it's, it's just a typical kind of like, I mean, yeah, it's out over the top and outrageous, but it's a pretty, pretty grounded gang yeah. fight until these fucking three bozos show up out of fucking nowhere. The three storms. The three, the three storms. storms. <laughs> now, I don't know, Steve, you may, but I've seen this movie so many times over the years. 
I could not tell you their individual names. Who's who? <laughs> like, I, I'm pretty sure the, the puffy face guy is like Thunder. Yeah, the puffy face guy is Thunder. One of the others is Rain, and the third is Lightning. All right, yeah. so who's your favorite, Steve? Ooh, that's a tough one. I'm, 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 I might like Lightning the best. Yeah, Lightning. But Thunder's sick. a lot of fun. <laughs> I, I think Rain. The way he mugs for the camera it's when true. he first shows up is like so memorable. He's got a great face. The three of them are very well cast. It's going to be one of the most memorable things from this movie for me is like the way he mugs with his stupid chin strap and you can see right up his nostrils. Yes. And he's got that long ponytail. It's just pretty cool. <laughs> his face though. Right? That's the face of a man you don't fuck with. The guy right. that, oh yeah. And from what they were saying, Carpenter and Russell and everyone else, everyone else, those guys were, were real. They were not just big dudes that got cast. They were magic. Well, oh, they weren't quite magic, yeah, but... All <laughs> no, they of, were, like, legit. All of them were real martial artists. Uh, Russell said... Russell spent six months or something weight training for this film so we'd have the right physique, and he said when he saw the actor who played um, Thunder without her shirt on, he was actually scared of the guy. I've seen pictures of that guy outside of this movie. He's huge. He's huge. That dude actually, no bullshit, most of his, most of his career was actually training the Hong Kong Police Department on martial arts and fighting tactics. He only did movies on the side. He was a real, like, recognized martial artist. Yeah, those guys were real. And so were, oddly enough, so were most of the extras. Carpenter went out of his way to find extras who actually knew martial arts. Not that what they were doing in the movie was real stuff, but it's so much easier to make it look convincing when the people who you've got know how to kick and, and whatever, you know? Well, right. I did notice a uh, Gerald Yakamura in there, uh, who's uh, famous from Samurai Cop. God, that movie's ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah, he's ridiculous. the... Steve, what does katana mean? It, katana means Japanese sword. What does katana mean? It means Japanese sword. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I love our running jokes, even right. though they're really, really, really stupid. Right. They, they have to be. It's a podcast called Big Dumb Movie. Come on. Somehow, like every podcast we do, somehow, some way, we tie it in with Samurai Cop. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and... I don't even actually. You know what? This may be the first one. I don't think I have a Star Wars connection, so I'm just going to mention Star Wars. We'll Here it is, on. right now. Here it is, right now. Yeah. <laughs> Steve hates Cat Eye Jabba. <laughs> Fuck Cat Eye Jara, Jabba and Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> well, uh, Kurt Russell uh, auditioned for Han Solo, so there's something. Oh yeah. Boom. Boom. Star Wars. I'm glad Harrison Ford ended up being Han Solo, but in a world where somehow Harrison Ford either didn't exist or wasn't around to do it, I don't. Kurt Russell might have been fun. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been a really fun movie. I do want to talk about the three storms a little bit more, just because there's some cool shit that goes on. First of all, you know they're like badass because they fly in. Yeah. So these guys are not your regular street gang guys. These are clearly henchmen for the boss. Yeah. These guys have magic. One, the lightning guy. He slides down yes. a bolt of lightning. That's, That's my so favorite cool. part. He uses it like a ladder. He just goes up and down on lightning bolts. It's fucking dope. It is. And his like exaggerated like forms that he does before calling lightning yes. is so cool. Dude, their kata is amazing. Absolutely. I love it. So these guys are just like, they start killing people. No one can fuck with these guys. They're like, you can tell they're super strong. They got magic. They got spinning hand blades. Yes. One of them has two back scratchers. <laughs> yeah, I love the spinning back scratchers on his palms. Well, yeah, one of them has the palms, one of them has two back scratchers. It, one thing I thought was kind of interesting, uh, you know, the Carpenter doing all this 
did a bunch of research himself. Carpenter had always wanted to make a martial arts movie. He loved kung fu movies. He loved martial arts. He loved Chinese history. He actually, the guy actually knows a lot about it. And he he knew that there was a point in Chinese history leading up to the development of kung fu where peasants were not allowed to have weapons. It was completely illegal. And there were times where upper-ranking people or military members would literally just come into their villages and they'd raid the farms and they would take all the food and all the money and then they would just disappear. And the farmers finally got so fucking sick of it, they figured out how to adapt their farm implements into weapons and then made a martial art around it. And that's kind of how Kung Fu started off. So even though they were all fake weapons, none of them in this movie are real, they actually did a lot of, spent a lot of time looking at like, what do, what do Asian farm tools look like? What do they use to cut the rice in rice paddies? What do they use in, on farms in central China? And then they tried to use those as like the basis for the weapons, which is kind of cool. Yeah, mm. I like that. <laughs> So uh, Jack sees all this shit going down and decides to hightail it the fuck out and runs right over David Lopan. Yeah, well, really through David Lopan, you discover later, but yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's that's kind of some of the physics that don't quite work super well because you see him, like, go under the truck, but also he can't really interact with things physically, so it's like... That's always been my one qualm. They should have They should have cut the shot where you see the truck making contact with the dummy. Because otherwise, you're right. The whole point is that when he's in his younger body, he's basically a ghost. He doesn't really have a body at all. He can only physically interact with stuff when he's in his decrepit old old man body. So. But he's got the, the Pennywise deadlights coming out of his eyes. Right? Holy shit. That's some gnarly shit, man. It Jack is. Burton looks right into his deadlights, and he wanted to be there. All right. <laughs> Where? He said, I looked into its deadlights, and I wanted to be there. Deadlights. Oh, man. So, yeah, we do see Lopan. Basically, our heroes, they retreat to the restaurant to kind of get their bearings because we know that Wayne has a restaurant. He said it earlier. And this is real quick. This is sort of a setup for more that we'll learn as the story goes on where it turns out that like Lopan's got different groups of people doing different parts of his dirty work for him. The, The three storms are his like personal guard. And they also go out and take care of more difficult, more detail-oriented tasks for him. But in addition to that, um, the Wing Kong also work for him. They, they do stuff on his behalf. And in turn, the Wing Kong employ the Lords of Death to help them do stuff on his yeah. behalf. So all these groups ultimately are doing stuff for Lopan. Basically, if you're evil and you're in this greater San Francisco area, you probably work for Lopan. Right, Exactly. <laughs> You don't even have to be Chinese. You can be a white guy. Yeah, you can be Commander William T. Riker of the USS Starship (laughs) Enterprise. Hey, man, the Foot Clan had white kids in it. (laughs) Yes. They had Danny. Right? (laughs) Danny. Here's a carton of cigarettes, Danny. Wait, it's just Dan now. Oh, it's just Dan now. Sorry, we've grown up. (laughs) Danny. Danny? God, where have you been? I've had the whole city looking for you. Are, Are you all right? Are you okay, Danny? It's okay, Dad. I'm okay. Really. I'm okay. Dad? It's just Dan now, okay? Dan. (laughs) This is... You guys are crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Alright, so for those of you that are thoroughly confused, let's get back into the movie. We get a little bit of, like, exposition here and a little bit later on. I kind of dumped them all into one, but 
Steve, it, Lopan has kind of explained to yeah. us, the audience, and to Jack Burton as yeah. the outsider of the group. Can, well, can you kind of fill us in on what's going on with that? Yeah, so so Jack and Wang Chi end up back at Wang Chi's restaurant, which he runs in collaboration with his uncle. Once they're there, uh, Jack also gets introduced to Eddie. Eddie is Wang Chi's friend, but he's also the restaurant maitre d'. And a whole lot more. And a whole lot more, right? It's it's obvious that that Wang Chi and Eddie and I think it's Uncle Chen is his name. They they know a lot about what's going on in the area, but most anyone else wouldn't. And um, you get a little bit of detail about Lopan here, and then a little bit more a few scenes later. Jack is basically told that Lopan Lopan is human, but he isn't. It, they constantly kind of lay back on on saying things like it's complicated or or it's magic and it can't really fully be explained. And I think they do it in a good way because the reality is you don't want the characters trying to over-explain the physics of, of how this works. But the idea basically is that Lopan is the subject of a curse. He is immortal in a sense, but he's also in a sense sort of a ghost that's bound to roam the earth. And in his ghostly form, he appears the way he did more than 2,000 years ago as a general and magician in China, a sorcerer. Um, and this is the point in history at which he was cursed by, by an emperor. He was cursed by the emperor who unified what used to be multiple states into one, one China, which is real. That actually happened. And um, since then, he's been sort of wandering the earth and that he can only interact on a physical level when he assumes the body of this just decrepit, ancient old man. So he's really screwed because he can't ever die and he can't move on to the afterlife and he can't interact with the world around him as a young man. He can only occasionally inhabit this ancient body. And the only way out of it for him, we ultimately find out, is for him to appease the god that made the curse possible by marrying and then eventually sacrificing uh, a green-eyed woman. There's Doesn't all... have to be a green-eyed Chinese woman, I noticed. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's kind of a weird one. It's like in 2,000 years, if it, if it didn't have to be a Chinese woman, none of the others. Anyway, <laughs> but although although they do make sort of a joke about that, too, where uh, uh, Jack brings that up later, and, and uh, Lopan basically says, well, you know how it goes with women. It's yeah. just often it doesn't work 2, out. 2,000 years, and you can't find one woman to fit the bill. Come on, right. Dave. <laughs> And that's part of the great thing about this movie is that they, they know it's tongue-in-cheek. They keep it very tongue-in-cheek. It's self-referential about yep. the weirdness of the whole thing. Exactly. And uh, there's another bit a few few scenes later where they're in Gracie's office slash apartment. We'll talk about it more when we get there. But one of Gracie's friends who's a reporter adds a little bit of detail to this by saying that, that publicly to the wider San Franciscan society – David Lopan is known as being the chairman of a very profitable bank and the owner of a very profitable trading company. Yeah. But that he hasn't been seen publicly in, in decades. I can't help but think the Marvel took some inspiration from this movie a couple years later when they did the when they started the Wolverine comics in oh, the late eighties. Yeah. It's so similar to Big Trouble Little China, everything that goes down, including like his two female sidekicks with Jessica Drew and whatever the fuck the other right. one's name is. Dude, it gets even better than that. There was a Ninja Turtle story called A Chinatown Ghost Story, which was made in two, 2014. And the episode, it's an animated episode, and it features uh, the voice of James Hong, who was Lopan, doing a character named Ho Chan. It is absolutely a spoof on this. Nice. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> but 
Our main quest of our heroes is to rescue Mao Yin. And they make the first attempt, Josh. What's their big plan? They're gonna send Kurt Russell into disguise, right? Oh my god, this is so this bad. is seriously one of my like the funniest parts of the movie. When he goes in dressed as Henry Swanson. Henry Swanson's the name and excitement's my game. He he um had previously worn the exact same suit in a movie from nineteen eighty called Used Cars. They made him wear the same suit again because I thought it would be a funny reference. <laughs> that's that's cute. I never noticed. Yeah. I, I love him trying to <laughs> Not be cool. Yes. <laughs> sure is raining cats and dogs. <laughs> Henry Swanson's my name, and excitement's my game. Cash what charge? Oh, gosh. Cash, I guess. I mean, it's not deductible, is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird to see Kurt Russell in that way, especially like peak Kurt Russell like this. Yes. <laughs> it's funny, though. It's gold. I, we should mention... We actually skipped through something at the restaurant. I'll just make a quick note, but, well, two things, really. The restaurant is really when we first get to know Aig Shen. Aig Shen is a local tour guide, but he's also a local mystic and expert on Lopan. And he shows up at the restaurant at Uncle Chen's invitation to discuss what Jack and Wang she had seen earlier in the day and to help figure out what they need to do about getting rid of Lopan. So that's how Aig Shen really gets brought into the fold with the rest of them. And um, as a side note, um, I wanted because I think this is amusing. The the uh, white tour bus that Aig Shen drives in the movie is now it's still around. It is in use. It's used as a tour vehicle up in Yellowstone National Park. Last time I heard, it still had the original movie paint job on it. It gives tours of uh, Old Faithful, and there are some there are some characters. I think they're in standard Chinese Mandarin on Aig's bus. And if you translate the characters on Egg's bus, it says, Uncle Egg's tours guarantee a good time. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, I think it's very funny. So, yeah. I love it. <sighs> Jack Burton's plan to rescue Mao, this first attempt, doesn't go super well. I mean, he's in there. I guess it's like um, a brothel, right? Yeah, it's a yeah. brothel. And it, as a kid... <laughs> you know, obviously, this is not something my father explained to me when he gave me the movie to watch. As a kid, I didn't get it. Took me until I was a teenager and several viewings later to realize that what's what's really going on in this story is that the Lords of Death are kidnapping recent Chinese immigrants and basically forcing them into uh, prostitution. Mm -hmm. And this brothel is really a sort of uh, it's a place where they keep these girls as sort of indentured servants. And you get the idea that every single one of these girls was either kidnapped and forced to work there, or there are girls that were brought over from China and told, you're going to have to do this if you want to live in the U.S. Right. And um, and you find out afterward, that's why the Lords of Death were in the airport in the first place. They weren't really looking for either of those girls specifically. They were just looking for a girl they could take, take to the brothel. Now, something that's always, even to this day, is... The Lords of Death are employed by the Wing Kong, but the Wing Kong kind of crash in and kidnap Miao Yin. Yeah. It's like the other hand doesn't know what the other one's doing. It's a good one. I've been thinking about this recently, too, but I think what it is is the even though the Lords of Death work for Lopan through the Wing Kong as an intermediary, it, the impression I've gotten is that the Lords of Death aren't constantly kept busy doing Lopan's work. There are times when they're just out doing their own thing. And that kidnapping girls to sell to the brothel is just something that they do. 
And I think the way you're supposed to infer this happened is that they kidnapped Mao Yin at the airport, took her to the brother and sold her, and then at some point later on, Lopan found out about it and that she was green-eyed and then sent the three storms to the brothel to get her for him. They're like, pick her up. Like, okay, we'll crash in the ceiling. Right. Blow the fucking place up and bring her back to you. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I'm, I think the story only really works if you assume that's the case. That Lop- yeah, Lopan has no idea what they're doing when they're not working for him. They're just doing whatever. And then he discovers this girl is there and is like, go, go get her. I do quite like the scene of the three storms crashing in, though. Oh, God, it's the best. And then... The, the rest of them, while Jackson and Sider in the cars out on the street talking, there's a moment where Eddie and Wang Chi realize something fucked up is going on, and they get out of the car, and when they look up at the, the top of the building, you can see the three storms descending onto the roof of this brothel. It's really cool. Yes. The effects with those guys, like the lightning in particular... I love that old style of animated yeah. effects. I, I think it just looks so good. Practicals, matting, and composite effects, in my opinion, are still superior to CG. Neither of them looks real, but the physical stuff looks physical. Right. And that helps. I am going to go out on a whim here and say that these lightning effects look better than fucking Raiden in 1995's Mortal Kombat. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> when it just goes to show you, because even though this wasn't a huge budget film, even by 86, They'd been doing those kinds of compositing effects for decades. They'd already gotten really good at it. With CG, part of the problem is the computers keep getting better. It never really looks real. Maybe someday, but yeah. So Mao Yin gets taken over to the Wing Kong's place. Uh, Our heroes kind of put that together. And uh, round two, they're going to go in again try to bring her out right i mean that's that's what this movie is is them trying to rescue her so like yeah they go they try they fail they try they fail she she gets taken by the three storms and the, the rest of them end up going back to gracie's apartment to regroup and figure out what they're going to do next egg is not egg shen is not with them at this moment during this you find out there's a little bit of dialogue got trimmed i don't think they should have trimmed you find out that that girl, Tara, who Gracie was waiting for at the airport, is living her living with her in the apartment. There is a line that remained in the movie um, from Gracie where she says that she's there to help and protect those girls and protect their civil rights. And, you know, you get the impression, okay, she's there basically to ensure that they don't get taken advantage of by the community. But there's a, a, a minute or so where the dialogue that gets trimmed, where that got trimmed where Gracie says, basically specifies that she's running a safe house. She's, she doesn't imply some of this later. She knows what's going on at this brothel. And she's been trying to get law enforcement and the press to pay attention to it for years. And no one, no one will. And she knows the girls are being kidnapped and she knows that they're being taken there. So she, she has been trying to intercept young female immigrants who are coming into the city from China and letting them stay at her place as a safe house so that they don't get wrapped up. In I this. think you get some of that, but you do. that, but that adds a lot yeah as well she uh has a line where she says she can't enter because you know yeah there's something wrong with your face yeah those people want to punch my face in you know and yeah yeah, yeah so, the face problem right so they decide that one way or another they're they're going to they're going to find uh, Mao Yin and, and get her back and then they involve um egg to help them with that since he's an expert yeah but first jack and wing they got to enter the the lair of our villains here and Josh, they, they kind of have an expert plan to get in, right? Yeah. Just grab, grab a random telephone, just walk oh, in, yeah. start chatting it up and just pretend like you're from the phone company. 
I guess they just kind of start like just shouting in their faces to confuse them and walk by, right? Yeah, when <laughs> they, they walk in, Wang says something to the group of them in Cantonese. So it's yeah, it's, he's trying to just distract them all, and and we're gonna we're gonna fix the phones. Don't worry about it. He's like just holding a telephone. It's the idea that you know if you act like you're supposed to be there, nobody's gonna say shit, right? Right. They might be acting a little bit too much like they're supposed to be there, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> I wanted to mention a 10 second asterisk. The scene when they're in Gracie's apartment, Kurt Russell got super sick, like super sick, huge flu, vomiting, everything. He was running a temperature over 100 and they really needed to get the shot that day. So Carpenter agreed to shoot Russell's scenes first if he would come into work and try to get through it. But Russell was so ill during shooting that scene in Gracie's apartment. He's all sweaty. And it's perfect because you get the impression he's sweaty because they just escaped the brothel. But he's actually sweating his ass off because he's got like a 104-degree temperature. And Russell has said he was so loopy he could barely remember his dialogue and he was amazed he, he got any of it out. Like, yeah. That's cool. <laughs> it is. Josh, what happens to our heroes inside the Wing Kong lair? So they find an elevator and... It quickly gets, you know, filled up with uh, seawater. They open up the elevator door and they are greeted by the hell of the upside down centers. Yes. I believe it's called. Yes. And it's just a bunch of fucking corpses uh, chained in this underwater chamber. And it's awesome. They got that classic like 80s horror look where they look good and real and scary. Look fleshy. Yeah. So like it adds a little bit of stakes to this kind of like silly goofy action movie that you've been watching so far <laughs> and um i think it's great letting you know that the stakes are high do you think that was a trap the elevator thing like that's the intention right oh like, yeah absolutely like one they managed to get past the initial security desk but those guys clearly told other people and and lopan obviously can watch the entire building they knew they were trying to trying to get the two of them yeah lopan has a beholder just floating around that thing is so oh fucking God, cool i, was I that love that effect <laughs> absolutely that was one of, I, I remember seeing the movie for the first time sitting in my room going oh that is so awesome like yeah. absolutely those things will turn your ass to stone <laughs> fucking medusa that is one of the like coolest fucking creative <laughs> things visually those are the the kind of 80s effects that just are timeless yeah the 80s effects are amazing they uh they got uh, a shop run by uh, Rob Edland to uh, to do the effects work for this movie, and Carpenter ended up not being totally happy with some of it. But um, Edland had, had was it was a big deal at that time, and he'd done a bunch of other films, including the original the original Ghostbusters. Hmm. Yeah. Nice. I think I can kind of see the similar similarities there a little bit. Right. Yeah. Uh, but our heroes are captured pretty quickly, and the B team comes in, which is Eddie, Gracie, and Margot. They're also they're, captured. They're not going to rescue shit. Yeah, uh, they get Thunder says, you know, I can have you. And then invites him to this elevator ride and lets out just a nasty fart that puts him right out. Is that what it is, Josh? <laughs> yeah, this, he rips a mean one. Uh, Carpenter really liked him and really like as a person and really liked him for the part. Um, but he did comment much for the same much in the same way that they were concerned about Jackie Chan that the only problem was his accent was so thick. He could speak English, but his accent was so thick, he, he would sometimes be difficult to understand. And they'd originally intended to give him 
um, more lines in English, but eventually decided not to do it. But also partly because Carpenter describes him as having a sort of sweet sounding voice. <laughs> and uh, they they thought it would make it really hard to convince people this guy was a bad guy, the way he sounds. He looks scary. He does. Sweet voice, though. <laughs> <laughs> I can hop you. I can help you. <laughs> uh, we do get to see Lopan in his true form. Uh, he is—he looks like Shang Tsung in the first Mortal Kombat. <laughs> it was also based on him. Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing this character actually provided the influence for inspiration for two different Mortal Kombat characters. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the early Mortal Kombat characters in lore, they just grab stuff from like their favorite media. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, that's what, that's part of the reason I love Mortal Kombat as much as I do. Me too. And that Mortal Kombat movie is one we're going to get to eventually too for the listeners. So, yeah, it got the uh, oh yeah the new one coming out in April. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it'll be a masterpiece. <laughs> I'm already disappointed, guys. Someone I I, I mean this com- with complete sincere and uh, seriousness. Someone I know was supposed to direct that film and ended up walking off of it because it was it's so much. So many problems. Oh, okay. So, so Steve has the inside scoop, huh? Only a little oh, bit, but yeah. Steve, we gotta have a conversation <laughs> off air. Right. <laughs> so Steve, our heroes are captured. The B team is captured. What happens? So, yeah, they're all they're all now being held in one way or another by Lopan Gracie, and the reporter are being held in basically bamboo jail cells, and. Uh, Wang Chi and Jack have been dragged to the bowels of this facility and are being kept in a room uh, that Eddie is eventually brought to also. They don't really know what the intent with them is, but they figure that Lopan must want them around for something because Wang Chi says that, you know, if he wanted us to be dead, there's no reason we wouldn't just be dead by now. They, they've, they've actually been tied, they've been uh, gagged and blindfolded and then bound to wheelchairs and rolled into this room. Jack manages to turn him, tilt himself onto his side and then use a knife to free himself from the binding and realizes that they're they're trapped in a room. He frees Wang Chi from his binding as well. Jack manages to sneak back to his chair so he isn't noticed, but Thunder comes in with Eddie, who is unconscious at that moment. He'd been knocked out in the elevator and with the huge fart. And um, at that moment, Jack tries to jump Thunder from behind, but Thunder does this sort of windbag thing where he can fill himself with air and expand his body. Yeah, he does the Inspector Gadget right? move. <laughs> and he manages to sort of knock Jack off of him. And when she... Jack can... off. <laughs> right? Uh, Sorry. Very uh, sure. Um... <laughs> Well, when she is distracting him, Jack is able to get on his get on his back and hold a knife to his throat. When she gets Eddie out of the room, problem for Jack is he's stuck on Thunder's back and doesn't really know how to get himself off without Thunder doing something about it. Himself off. <laughs> That's two. It is two for two. I'm not even trying. I'll That's show some, you, Jack. <laughs> some Freudian shit right there. Um, but uh. Yeah, anyway, Thunder... The Thunder does the expansion move yeah, to, like, blast him back. To throw... Yeah, he kind of throws Jack off his body. Jack lands in one of the wheelchairs and then starts rolling at a real high speed down a very steep incline toward a, a what looks like almost a bottomless pit. Yeah, it's like a well. It's, it's like a, a huge D&D well. It's a D&D dungeon well. Right. Like, and, uh... Uh, Wang Chi and Eddie manage to seal Thunder momentarily, at least, inside this room while while Jack is rolling away. 
Jack rolls all the way to the edge of this well and his wheelchair almost gets tipped in, but he manages to, to grab the wheelchair's wheels and sort of haul himself back out of this hole before he goes down. It turns turns out that incline wasn't really an incline. It was basically level, and they shot it at an angle to make it look like he's... Yeah, when it was going upward, I was... I was Thing. I was like, is it, they're not really going upward right now, are they? Yeah, it seemed kind of weird. Like, yeah, you have to pay attention to notice, but you're right. Yeah, yeah. It, I did it, what you said, by the way. I watched it paying full attention. I know you were concerned that I might look away for notes. <laughs> I just didn't want you to get distracted for like, for like three, four minutes at a time. Right. But yeah, yeah, you know, but I'm glad you did that. And yeah, and the the well was forced perspective. According to John Carpenter, it was really only something like, like eight or ten inches deep. But they used forced per- perspective to make it look deeper. But yeah, that was kind of a neat scene. So then, and then they they go running off, and they end up um, finding Gracie and a bunch of other girls in this sort of lockup area. Right. The, I mean, from here on out, it's kind of like let's escape. They were held captive. Now they got to escape this layer that they broke into. They still do not have Mao Yin, but at this point, they they just need to be able to get out of there. Right. And uh, we get to see Wang showcase his skills. Now we didn't know up until this point in the movie. It's maybe halfway through or a little bit less, but Josh, doesn't Wang have some fucking sick skills? He's he's a badass, as it turns out. He's been out. holding this back for some time. He, <laughs> he can get the fuck down. Yeah, dude, this guy can fight. He's it, fucking awesome. He's like the best fighter in their whole group. It, it exactly. really underlines the whole idea here that, like, Jack means well, and he's trying. He's really, Jack is really trying, and he's really putting in a very physical effort, and he definitely helps. But but Wang Chi is the competent half of this this duo, and he's the one doing a lot of the heavy physical lifting. Yeah, yeah. He fights well. Him and Eddie, and Eddie is just like kind of like your regular guy that like just like puts up his dukes, you know? Like, right. <laughs> he's just like, all right, I'll fight if I have to, kind of guy. Yeah. They fight. They all like, get their ass kicked by some chicks. Yeah, they fight the female guards. I was gonna say they. they I mean, they come out on top. I think fortunately because they have Wang. If it was just like Eddie and another. Eddie. Eddie and Jack would have gotten If their it was two kid. Eddies, yeah, it wouldn't <laughs> have been great. Eddies. <laughs> Jack would have probably like slipped on a banana peel and fell off the bridge. Like, <laughs> it's a great moment where he shoots the ceiling and knocks himself so out. If that climax fight, it's the best. Yeah, later on, that's that is awesome. <laughs> Goes to show like how kind of like incompetent he is. <laughs> I mean, we see that a little bit more because you know they rescue Gracie and the the B team, and they're making their way out of the facility. And there's another fight. It's basically Wang. Well, Jack does shoot a bunch of guys, but when he runs out of ammo, he like fumbles for his knife and he's just like, it slips out of his hands and he's like, right. he goes behind a shelf and he's like trying to fish it out. Meanwhile, Wang is just fighting like Everybody. seven guys and just like whooping their fucking ass like he's Bruce Lee. It's awesome. Yeah. It's so fucking cool. Oh, it really is. The whole thing's great. It's, it's all really well choreographed and then it's done. Uh, did not know any martial arts. He was not trained in it. He was one of the few members of the cast that that didn't have any martial arts background in but he apparently really worked his ass off. Carpenter made multiple points of mentioning it. He would spend just about every moment he had where he wasn't learning, learning lines or doing something else, uh, practicing his choreography. He spent basically every down moment during the film carrying a, a wooden practice sword around for, to practice the scenes where he was going to be using one and he really, he really put a lot of effort into it. I get the feeling, even though he's not a martial artist, he's probably just generally athletic. Yeah. Because it comes off really well. Yeah, he pulled off the choreography perfectly. You know, and, and Carpenter, I don't, I'm not trying to take anything away from Dunn. Carpenter was very good about making sure the people they had planning the choreography 
were also martial arts people who would understand how it needed to look, but yeah, Dun Dun did a great job. Our heroes do eventually escape the lair, but Gracie gets taken at the very last minute by Chinese Sasquatch. Chewbacca's father-in-law from the holiday special. Right, this kind yeah. of weird Chinese mythical monster thing, which it's... I fucking love. This is one of the most 80s concepts. There's like the weird sewer-dwelling monster, horrifying monster thing. It's a very 80s concept, but I love it. It's so good. The monster looks fantastic. It does. And it's peeking at them from behind a mask that's built into a wall, and then it opens the sliding door to grab Gracie at the last minute. It, yeah, but it does. I mean, Steve, you've seen the holiday special, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it looks like Lumpy or whatever the fuck his name is. Yeah, <laughs> no, Lumpy's the kid. Like yes. <laughs> I was. I thought you were gonna say it looks like B. Arthur. <laughs> I'm sorry, B. Arthur. I liked you. She's cool. Yeah. <sighs> so our heroes they retreat back to Egg Shen's place, and uh, they got to Go back in. <laughs> yeah, they're gonna, they go to Egg Shen's to re-coordinate again with him and with his help because they know they can't do this without him. But I want to I want to stop there for a second because do you recognize Egg Shen's place? It's one of the few interior sets in the entire movie that's a real building and not a set, and it was used in another movie that wasn't made all that long before this one. I don't know it. Would it give you any help if I told you that in? In its other appearance, a woman named Janine worked as the receptionist. <laughs> really? Oh, it's, it's a the fire ghost- station from, from Ghostbusters. Shut it's the same up. building. Same interior. That's so cool. Yeah. That place is a dump. What do you think, Egon? I think this building should be condemned. There's serious metal fatigue in all the load-bearing members. The wiring is substandard. It's completely inadequate for our power needs. And the neighborhood is like a demilitarized zone. Hey, does this pole still work? This place is great. When can we move in? You've got to try this pole. Right? <laughs> and, I, and I don't think it's a dump at all. I think it looks fantastic. But yeah, oh. that's the interior. That's, that's the Ghostbuster station. That's Fire Station 23, which is awesome to tie the two of those together. Which is not the same as the exterior, right? Right. Are Correct. you saying uh, Egg Shen's uh, sliding pole is the exact same pole that he used in Ghostbusters? That is the pole. That is the one Dan oh. Aykroyd and, and Bill Murray themselves crotch slid down. Does this pole still work? Right? The pole still works. And uh, and yeah, and absolutely, they, they make mention there that Shen is actually a real wealthy guy because in, in addition to his little tour company, he apparently, according to Wang Chi, um, Egg owns a huge percentage of the property in that narrow, basically owns the entire block. So all those buildings are his. And it turns out that one of the reasons he's got this building is because, yeah, there's fire pole access that goes underground down to, to a level where you can access uh, Lopan's underground city. He's got this like underground city he lives in. As long as he doesn't release the ghost in the, the basement. You know, yeah, just don't trap the, uh, the, 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 uh, capsules that are holding every fine. And Egg Shen brings in some of the good ninjas to help out. Yes. Yeah, he brings in some of the uh, the uh, Cheng Cheng Sings with him. But I think it, it something that took me years to really notice. He's with the guys who are with him are good guys. They're Cheng Sing, but he's got them wearing the Wing Kong's outfits. And oh, it didn't yes. occur to me until I was in my twenties, and I'd already seen this movie probably ten or twelve times that. It makes total sense because he's going to try to sneak the group of them into Lopan's palace. He wants them to look like the guys that Lopan employs. I thought they were wearing the gold. Are they wearing the? Weren't a couple of them wearing black? I swear, a couple. Black of them and gold, were... I think. Yeah, and the, and the the good guys were wearing white. The Chengsings were wearing white in the original and in, in the first fight. 
I thought it was the, black the funeral and guys were in white, and then like their homies were wearing black. No, the good guys are white and gold, and the bad guys are black and red. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, it's like straight Lord of the Rings, like <laughs> underneath Chinatown. I love it. It's so cool that that, that, that whole underground world like, fascinates the shit out of me. I love that It reminds of me a lot of uh, Ridley Scott's Legend. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, God, it's another good one. Oh, yeah. Oh, I love Legend. Anyway, <laughs> so yeah. <good. laughs> I'm in for Legend. Yeah, I, sign me up for that one. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. So they're taking that secret path over to Lopan's place. Meanwhile, Lopan has decided, now that he has two green-eyed women, just fucking marry them both. Why yeah. not? Kill He's, one, not? keep the other one. He's got to do this test to see whether or not the two of them will, will appease Chengdai. And I guess that's been the hitch for this 2,000 years. Is like He's found other green-eyed women, but none of them could pass this test. If they don't set this like lamp off, it means that Chang, Ching, Chang did... Yeah, Chang Dai doesn't Sing like ding. them. Yeah, right. And he can't, and he, and he can't use them. And then, so the addendum here again is that he's supposed to. He's got to murder the woman he marries in order to appease this curse. But he's decided, yeah, he's going to marry both of them and kill kill Gracie so that he can keep Mao Yin for himself. What kind of fucking ritual is this, right? It's like, look how good I am at kung fu, everybody. Dude, I had the same thought. I was like, I bet half of this is unnecessary. They could just <laughs> do the magic part. But, like, these guys are like, hold on, I've been practicing for weeks. Right? <laughs> I, I mean, there is some of that, you know, you look, like the, you, it's like a martial ceremony where, like, you're trying to get the god of war's attention, so you've got to do this, like, martial ceremony first to get him to pay attention. I mean, look, it's all made up anyway, right? <laughs> <laughs> are the <laughs> cheetah print wrists snapping? Bonds part of the ritual? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I just love how these guys are like, hold up, before we start, yeah, check I'm this do out. A performance here. <laughs> yeah. Look how good I am at Kung Fu, everybody. He's like, you could have just set the weapons at their feet, you know, you didn't have to do the whole thing leading up. But no, <laughs> Thunder's got a showcase. Yo, chicks, touch the sword. <laughs> <laughs> you want to touch my sword, baby? Right? Trust me, that line does not work. <laughs> <laughs> So Egg Shen leading our, our group kind of, he's, he takes them into the building and before they have like the big confrontation at the end, he says, look, I've got this magic fucking potion. This is going to be the key to defeating them. I love this This is going to fuck your shit up, dog. What's in the flask, Egg? Magic potion? Yeah. Thought so. Good. What do we do? Drink it? Yeah. Good. Thought so. Yeah, and it's so funny. If you read generic descriptions of this movie, like on Wikipedia, it always just says that he gives them like a magic potion. And what he very clearly did was dose them with the hallucinogens. So they wouldn't be scared before the fight. Like, <laughs> like, all of you just got dosed with some kind of fucked up Chinese hallucinogen. It's fine, but that's what happened. Right. Because like, I, I noticed when, when it starts kicking in, when they're in the elevator. Exactly. It starts with them laughing. And, they, exa- and that's another one I didn't get when I was a kid. It took until I was early, in my early 20s and I understood what people were like, like on mushrooms. It's exactly. like, yeah, they're on. You oh. know when you take mushrooms and the giggles kick in. <laughs> right? Feel pretty good. And I'm not uh, not scared at all. I just feel kind of feel kind of invincible. Me too. I got a very positive attitude about this. Good. Me too. Yeah. It's 
getting hot in here? Is it just me? It's like, oh, they're all on a hallucinogen. That makes so much more sense. You know? <laughs> yeah, the Ugh. big twist is none of the shit went down. It was all in their head because they're all on LSD. <laughs> right? Dude, I, I, I actually have thought of almost the same thing. Was Wouldn't it be funny if, like, the movie at the end reeled back and the group of them is just on the floor in the elevator dreaming the entire thing? <laughs> the fight never happened. <laughs> Wang thinks he's really doing karate in the air. Right? The egg's just on his back kicking the air, throwing explosives at the elevator. <laughs> he's like laying down, and then the three ninjas uh, are around him like, Grandpa, what's wrong? Right? Oh my god, that would be perfect. You segue it right into a three ninjas movie. Yes! <laughs> that summer, our grandpa died. Right? We don't know what happened. He was yelling stuff about Lopan and Egg Shen and, and Jack Burton. We've never heard of these people. And then he just Died, right? <laughs> he thought he was shooting some kind of weird purple energy ball. <laughs> Grandpa, how'd you do that? <laughs> One great moment is when they're like on their way to Lopans and that giant man-eating fish comes out and eats yes. one of the, the red shirts. <laughs> I love that thing. It's so good. It's so good, right? Like, it, the creatures are one of the best things about 80s movies in general. 80s movies, the creatures are almost always either really awful or really fantastic. Yeah. Like... Uh, I love uh, Jack's reaction when he, uh, Egg tells him that thing will come out no more. He's like, what? What yeah. will come out no more, huh? It will come out no more. What? Huh? What will come out no more? Come on. Damn it. Right? It's, it's another one like the, with the weapon at the airport where Jack's reaction is just perfect. Ugh. <laughs> <sighs> So our group of heroes, they have to wait for, like, the ritual, the ceremony to begin yeah, before they can start fighting. They're on their way to the, the main arcade where the ceremony's going to happen, and they, they encounter the eyeball monster. Yeah, the beholder. The beholder. And that <laughs> thing that thing needed um, dozens of different cables and multiple puppeteers to power it, and they had to use a specially designed matting system in order to get the composite shot to, to work. Apparently... John Carpenter is actually the first person to have used several different special effects technologies in a movie, like pre-CG, all physical, physical effects technologies. Oh, Jesus. And he was the first person to use some kind of advanced crane system for tracking shots during the earlier mid-80s. It's really interesting, but see so the see the eyeball monster and the beholder, it, it can, anything it sees, Lopan can see, it looks, it looks at everything for him, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> but they get to this giant ornate arcade with this huge double level setup that includes a magn magnificent neon skull with an open mouth tens of feet high and it's got an elevator that extends out of it and apparently the elevator escalator escalator sorry escalator the escalator was a little rickety and uh, James Hong Lopan really was not liking having to ride it and he, he had apparently had a discussion with Carpenter. He's like, why can't you get my my stunt double to do it? You know, here's here's they, some of these guys have their own. Some actors have stunt doubles. They just work with every single time. And that's that's my stunt double. This guy is my stunt double. Schwarzenegger had a dude like that. And and uh, James Hong was like, I have a stunt double. Get the stunt double. I don't want to be on that thing. And Carpenter's like, we don't have time. Just get up there. And <laughs> he did it. Uh, well, damn. I, I feel like it was for the best, though. It was. It looks fantastic. The sets in this movie are so cool. Like the like yes. the ornate Chinese, like the Buddhist statues, and just like the way it looks. It, it has this like authentic like Chinatown feel, but it also feels like more elaborate than that. It feels like if if yeah. all this stuff was going down, these are the environments it would take place. Yeah. In. 
environmentally, it's perfect. You're absolutely right. They nailed the, the set design. It's incredible. It, it really just looked like this is this is what it all really would look like. And you're, they like Chinatown, but mythical. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The mythical Chinatown. <laughs> right. Josh, why don't you tell us about the big fight that erupts? Oh man, there's so much going on in this final fight. It's hard to unpack. Wang fights Rain uh, in a very choreographed wire sword fight, but it's awesome. Jax fucking knocks himself out by shooting the ceiling out. Egg Chen fights uh, Lopan in this weird, like, mysticism kind of like I don't know what the fuck how did the fuck they connect their like magic digimons together and like they battle them like yeah <laughs> it's like a, a magic vi- fighting game or some shit like that that scene was that portion of the scene was Carpenter's idea because he, he was really into like the mystical side of 60s and 70s era kung fu films and he really wanted to get some of that into this so he, he wanted to do that that's pretty cool yeah yeah I mean there's just shit blowing up there's guys fighting Guys stabbing each other. Magic is everywhere. Magic is in the air. Love is in the air. <laughs> it's a wedding after all. It is. It's an, it's an unconsent, non-consensual wedding, but nonetheless. It's still a beautiful wedding, Steve. It's still a beautiful occasion. I know that neither of them consented, but that ceremony was fantastic. <laughs> you know, it's really too bad. And the cake. And it, I was just going to say, it's way too bad they didn't get a chance to finish, because one thing that's bound to be great at a Chinese wedding is the food. Yeah. So. Who's <laughs> uh, catering this? Right? No, but uh, <laughs> Wang and Rain fighting each other. I assumed when I was watching it, maybe now I'm having doubts, that it was the potion that gave Wang the ability to stab Rain because he takes him out with a sword. He launches a sword at him, yeah. goes goes right through him. But like, I thought these guys were like immune to that kind of physical. Because remember earlier, Jack Burton was just punching him in the face and yeah. he was just like mugging at him all the time. So I, here, you could be right, but here's what my theory has always been: they intentionally wait until after Lopan has gotten into the ceremony because they need the ceremony to make him flesh and blood, and so that he's killable. And they know that this has happened when um, Lopan is able to draw blood from himself using the needle. They, at that point, he's become flesh and blood. He's mortal. I think that the three storms mortality is tied to Lopan's mortality. I think the same spell that gave him immortality also gave it to them. I see. And that once it was broken, it made it possible to kill them also. That's just my theory. That's a solid theory. Yeah. I can get yeah. behind that. I can get behind both of those theories, to be honest. <laughs> now, Lopan, after he becomes mortal, he kind of scurries off with Meow Yin. But Jack and Wang, they catch up to him. I, I wrote it as Wing. <laughs> Ween is something else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jack and the band Ween. <laughs> <laughs> Who have not been heard from in several years. Right. Famous from It's Pat. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but they catch up to the to the final boss and Josh, like, maybe you can tell us about this final confrontation. Okay, so Lopan, who's no longer old Lopan or old pan who's uh, tired of using a bedpan. Um, uh, he is now mortal, and he, he, I love him giggling like a little girl. Yeah, Something about that actor giggling like a little girl. Is James Hong is so wonderful. Every party he's ever been in was good. He was chewing Blade Runner. Like, he's fantastic. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, Jack has a moment with Gracie Law on the elevator, 
And they sure kiss. And Jack <laughs> stumbles out of this elevator with lipstick still on his lips and tries to carry himself like a fucking badass, but it's really <laughs> so hard good. to take him serious. There was, it, 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 it is perfect, and apparently there was a really short, short discussion on the set that everyone eventually agreed about where it was one of the producers or someone, someone on the set noticed and talked, said to Carpenter, you know, he's got all this lipstick smeared on his face. You're going to have to have him wipe his face. And they're like, no, it's way better if he goes in there with all the lipstick <laughs> on his mouth like that. And it is. It's so it much is. better. It's perfect. It's Jack. I mean, it's Jack. It's, a, it's a part of the reason why, you know, a low pan and thunder can't take him serious. Right? Who's Jack Burton? Jack Burton, me. Not so fast, gentlemen. Oh, is it too much to ask thunder? Kill him for me. Won't solve anything, Dave. Too many people around here been dropping like flies already, and where's that getting us, huh? Nowhere. Fast. Ah, you know what old Jack Burton always says at a time like this? Who? Jack Burton. Me. <laughs> so Thunder fights Wang, and Jack kind of has like a, a showdown. Not a fight, but a showdown with Lopan. He yes. takes out his knife, his old trusty, and he proceeds to like throw it and just like miss by like a mile. Like he just airballs this fucking thing. Yeah. <laughs> so Lopan goes, casually walks over and picks it up. Throws it's a nice it. knife, Mr. Button. Bye, <laughs> <laughs> <Bye>, Mr. Button. <laughs> throws it back at Jack, who then catches it, launches it again, right in the forehead. Which is like the reflexes. Exactly. <laughs> and you know what? It's been a long time since I've seen this movie, but I said the line before he said it because they set it up so well earlier in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's fantastic. They're able to kill the the observer, the eyeball monster. Jack had tried to shoot it before and that did not work. Josh, yeah. how does Thunder react to his boss getting killed? Oh my god, what a reaction. I like still I'm still kind of confused. I guess it's like a form of like harakiri, right? He just yeah. decides to ritualistically uh, commit suicide, but I thought he was just so frustrated that he couldn't contain himself. Yeah, I it's one of the only thing in that movie I've never been able to really come up with what I felt was a comfortable answer, but Corey, that's what I've always just landed back on is it was he was just so upset that he just lost control of this ability and <laughs> It just lets out a nasty fart. <laughs> that effect of him blowing up is insane. Right? It really is. It's and it, I mean, and that's another great 80s thing with the, the expanding body, you know? Yeah. It looks so great. Oh, my God. I mean, that effect uh, is so fantastic. It is. It, like, even if it isn't all that perfect, and I think the one, the, the effects in this movie are fantastic, but even if it's not perfect, I just... Me personally, I find old physical, old practical effects so much more satisfying than old CJ. I mean, ILM's the biggest, or one of the biggest special effects houses on the planet. It's run by one of the, whatever qualms I have about him, one of the biggest geniuses in sci-fi filmmaking in history. And even still, you look back at the CG they added to Star Wars in 97, it doesn't look very good. It doesn't, and it's not even, I mean, they were trying. And at the time, people thought it looked great. I remember being... Uh, what, 13, 14 years old seeing it in a theater going, holy shit, this looks amazing. And it just it, it didn't age well. But you look at practical stuff from the 80s, it's like, this is so cool. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen like random movie clips on YouTube, like cheesy deaths from movies, but this is yes. considered one of them. Oh, yeah. And I don't, yeah. I, I kind of get it, but at the same time, this is a this is a good death. Yeah, I think so too. There's another series, a real, real B-horror series from the 80s called Basket Case. 
I highly yes. encourage you to look up the basket case death videos on YouTube because that's fucking incredibly odd. They're terrible. They're amusing, but they're awful. <laughs> that sounds like a Josh movie. Yeah, I think it probably it, it is. absolutely does. <laughs> so, of course, in, uh, I guess, any action movie fashion, the place starts to, like, fall apart, right? The whole building's it's, gonna collapse. It's becoming, like, a thing on this podcast. Like, goddamn, right? how many self-destruction buttons go off? <laughs> I was like, oh, God, it's Three Ninjas Kickback. It's, I mean, but it's not just that. It's every movie. Like, this is a thing that has to happen. It's the dock collapsing on top of them at the end of Teen Ninja Turtles 2. You know? Street yeah. Fighter. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's so much shit that just, like, self-destructs. Yeah, if you're in a villain's lair at the finale of a movie, it's going to have to collapse for some reason. <laughs> they don't even really have to explain it in most cases. Now, one thing that is always... I fucking love this movie to death. However, if I had one complaint, it's Lightning's death. It's so anticlimactic. I think it's so funny that they just, like, bonk him on the head and send him to horny jail. Like, <laughs> they just, like, they drop a fucking, like, statue on his head like, yeah. when he's trying to climb up the hole. Like, <laughs> I love it. He's climbing up his lightning ladder. Yeah. <laughs> right to horny jail for you, sir. But uh, one thing that I thought was really stupid was Grandpa Mori Tanaka, when they, like... He's like, here, let me help you get up. And he has this little crossbow rope gun. Oh, yeah. And he shoots it down, and they grab it, and somehow... Yeah, it powers itself. Somehow this thing takes them from story one to story two. Well, like the, the movement of it, if you take away what's powering it, the movement of it makes sense, right? Because it's just a rope and a pulley. So you pull you pull it through, and the pulleys drag up whatever's on the rope, but somehow Egg doesn't need to pull it. It's like motorized. Yeah, it's just like... So yeah, well, like what's, where did the motorized power come from? I don't understand. It's a mechanical device. Like, that can take like the weight. Yeah, I mean, yeah. whatever. It's just like... Very it, strange. It's, it's fine for a movie like this. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's one of those... Like, again, don't question it too much. Just enjoy yourself. <laughs> they, they find Jack's truck, which he left in the alley near the beginning of the movie. And that's like kind of their escape vehicle as they're leaving the building. But yeah. not before killing a couple cops, right? Like, they gotta... <laughs> there's actual cops have shown up. And uh, I think they just shoot a few of them or something, right? It's, it's, not, like, it's not a big deal. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> oh. yeah, yeah, I guess so. Then they, they escape in the truck. Yeah. And uh, Steve, like, where does that kind of take us? Like, how does it end? So the, there's there's an alternate scene that didn't make it into the final cut where after they get out in their truck, they happen across the Lords of Death and their red Trans Am and Jack rams them into the bay using his truck. But that, that scene didn't make it into the final cut. Oh, I really wish it would have. Yeah, actually, so do I. Josh, considering how much you like it, the two-disc special edition from Shout Factory on Amazon is $14.99. It's worth every penny, and the alternate ending is in it. Uh, well, I'm ordering that after this. Yeah, I mean, honestly, dude, I would. I've been rewatching it the last week. It's got so much bonus material in it, you will just pee yourself with happiness. There's a ton Jeez. there. <laughs> You'll explode in frustration. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh... But yeah, so after that, they end up um, back at the um, Black Pearl, which is uh, Wang Chi's restaurant. <laughs> Jack Sparrow's <laughs> Jack, shit. Jack Sparrow's shit, yeah. I think it's called the Black Pearl, the Dragon's Black Pearl, something like that. Anyway, whatever it is. They end up back at Wang Chi's restaurant, and uh, they have a kind of kind of goodbye. There's a, uh, a will-they-won't-they moment between Gracie and Jack, but Jack decides he's going he's gonna to move on. 
Um, right. He doesn't take the girl with him. He's yeah. a lone warrior, a ruthless wanderer. <laughs> I love the fact that he doesn't kiss her goodbye. Me too. I think it's a lot better. I think they, it's like shirking the cliche that like in the end, he's supposed to have the big kiss and then ride off into the sunset with her, you know, and he goes, he goes off to his truck and, uh, I won't ruin it for you, Josh, but there's actually in some of the deleted scenes, there's an additional moment with Jack and egg on his way to the truck, which I think is nice. Oh, fuck. I can't wait. <laughs> right. You're going to really, really like this stuff. I promise. <laughs> um, but the movie does actually end like a like a Goosebumps novel. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it has a very like horror stinger. Yeah. Like, <laughs> right. Where like he's driving off and he's like, he's just fucking word souping into his radio again. <laughs> just like saying nothing into the mic. Right. And on the back of the truck, hitching a ride, is uh, Chewbacca's father-in-law. Absolutely, the monster's with him. <laughs> and then this, the movie ends over a song performed by a band called the Coupe de Vils, which is composed of John Carpenter, Tommy Lee Wallace, who was a second unit director, and uh, a good imaginary friend of mine, Nick Castle who is a former Michael Myers and director of The Last Starfighter, which is one of my favorite movies. The also, Shape himself? The Shape himself. Also, okay. unfortunately, the writer and director of a movie called August Rush, <laughs> which he should never have been involved with because it's one of the worst things that's ever been put on film. <laughs> oh, Tell me how you really feel, Steve. Right? And Tommy Lee Wallace was the director of uh, Season of the Witch. Yes, yes. Yes, that's right. They both had an involvement with Halloween, and, um, uh, and that's... And the it miniseries. God damn it. Oh, yeah, Thank you, right. Corey. I knew I recognized that name from somewhere, but you mentioned Season of the Witch. I'm like, that's where I fucking know that name. Josh's and, favorite Halloween movie. Right? Absolutely. A couple of last little momentary thoughts for me before we wrap up with Josh and the story. But the movie did go on to become a huge hit through cult video. Or through home video. Cult hit through home video. And uh, I forgot to mention earlier, I wanted to mention this. Part of the, aside from the, the advertising issues and Fox not knowing how to advertise it, one of the reasons I had a hard time with this movie at the box office is that 16 days after it came out, Aliens came out. And um, not only was that a huge, difficult thing for them to fight at the box office, and they couldn't really fight at the box office, I've also heard that for some reason Fox couldn't get this movie into enough auditoriums. But kind of a coincidence because Cameron, as I think you know, Corey, did other things in the industry before becoming a director, one of which was working on the matte paintings that were used for Escape from New York. So Cameron created matte paintings that Carpenter used for Escape to New York and then six years later ended up directing a movie that went into competition with this and ended up beating it at the box office. It's all connected, man. Yeah, it's very weird. Any final thoughts about Big Trouble Little China itself before we do ratings? Josh? Are we going to mention that the fact that they're planning on making a sequel and or remaking this with The Rock? What? Yeah, did you not hear about this? I've, You're making that up, right? I've heard that rumor. I do not think it's real. I've seen him talk about... I mean, like, if it happens or not is another story, but I know he's at least talked about it and how he's been approached. Whoa. Cool. Yeah. Finally, we'll get a good version of this movie. You know what I'm saying? Oh. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, Steve, the disappointment on your face it really speaks for itself. Yeah, I mean, I'm, that's like, like my face is only half of how bad I feel inside <laughs> thinking about it. So, <laughs> imagine the pain I feel. Right? 
One thing I will say is uh, when they're drinking the potion, they ask, you know, Egg, what's what's in the potion? And he says, like, Earth, Wind, and Fire. And I'm like, oh, I love that band. Yeah. <laughs> Earth, Wind, and Fire. <laughs> it's like, uh, what's that movie like? Is it Half Baked where they have, like, Jerry Garcia? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. It's Jerry Garcia in a pouch, man. Steve, do you have anything to add? The only other production-related factoid I guess I'll squeeze in before we get to the ratings part is that the they did use they did take exteriors of actual Chinatown for this movie, and some of the outdoor stuff was shot there. But when Jack first arrives in Chinatown at the beginning of the movie um, for the gambling scene, that's not Chinatown; it's part of a set. And a few weeks after they were finished using it, they shot a Janet Jackson video on it. Hmm. Other than that, I, I guess it's uh, rating time for me, at least. All right, it's time for ratings. Josh, on any rating scale you want, what are you going to give Big Trouble in Little China? Oh, I'm going to give this... My, phew, let me think of a good rating scale. I'm going to give it five three storms out of five. <laughs> so that's like 15. Three storms out of five? No, no, five three storms out of five. So oh, like, I see. So he's, wait, he's, he's... Why does this have to be such a confusing fraction? Yeah, his <laughs> unit of rating is three, and he's giving him five threes. Yeah, so it's a 15, it's true. Basically, you're giving them 15 storms. storms. There you go. They get 15 out of 15 storms. Okay, and why? Everything about this movie is fucking fantastic to me. The special effects, the writing, the performances, just how fucking batshit crazy the story gets sometimes. Right. Uh, this movie's like just fucking bonkers, and I love it. It really is off the rails. It is. And for that reason, I'm going to give it seven and a half. No, you know what? Eight out of ten frustrated explosions. Thank you. I do like this movie a lot, and I'm glad I do, because now I can yeah. fit in with my peers, because everyone my age likes this movie. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This is one, like I said, I didn't like when I first saw it. wasn't in the right headspace for it. What this movie is, is a fun 80s adventure with comedy yeah. and likable characters, and it's, it's very 80s. It's... <laughs> It's just a, a good ride. So if yes. any of that sounds interesting to you, I think this is the right one for you. Kurt Russell is very charming, and he's a good leading man, even when he's a doofus. And I like that he's like not afraid to be one. I was thinking like what Bruce Willis would you know do in his shoes. Maybe not Bruce Willis at the time, but like Bruce Willis with an ego. Like, no, I don't fuck up. I'm not going to have the rocks land on my head. I forgot. I do want to interject one comment based on that, but I'll let you finish your rating. Uh, that's it. I'm good. Steve. All right, so before I get to my rating, my one comment based on that, during the commentary for this film, so there's multiple commentary tracks. One of them is Russell, Kurt Russell with John Carpenter. During the course of that commentary, Russell actually specifically talks about that by the point they'd recorded this commentary, which was years ago already, Russell had already decided he was pretty much never going to take an action role again. Not so much because he didn't think he could handle it anymore, but because he felt that he'd gotten too old for it to be worth watching. And that even he as an actor didn't like seeing old guys constantly play action roles because it made it hard to get into it. What he always really wanted was to see younger guys playing action roles. And um, 
it made me think specifically a lot about the fact that they're key, they're still making Die Hard movies, and that I really wish they wouldn't, because um, Bruce Willis was awesome in the in the first and third ones, and um, maybe he should just be done doing that kind of movie now because it's fucking ridiculous um in any case <laughs> bruce willis this was russell's a trooper though at, at that point he's talking about how the first real or the last real action movie he'd been in was soldier and um he broke his hand and like two of his ribs while he was making it and just kept showing up for production because he didn't want to want to have to walk off the part he just kept doing it and yeah and he's rating wise um I'm going to give this film 10 out of 10 floating eyeball-covered observer monsters. <laughs> um, this is legitimately one of my favorite things. 10 out ever. of 10 from Steve. I just want to make sure that the listeners understand how big that is. Right? Yeah, I mean, this is legitimately one of my favorite things in the entire world. It's perfect. It's perfect. It doesn't advertise itself as being anything other than exactly what it is. It doesn't make any promises that it fails to deliver on. It is entertaining from the first moment to the last, even despite whatever few qualms you could pull out of it. It's fun. It's unique. It's it's a ride. It's entertaining. It's exactly what it's supposed to be. That's the core of cinema. There's different kinds of movies that have different points, but like at the end of the day, the core of cinema is to entertain people. That's what this movie is all about. It, there's just nothing even remotely wrong enough with it for me to not like every part of it. And and for me, that's a ten. Absolutely, Damn. yeah. High praise from Steve. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> I was going to try to shoehorn in a last minute Jesus character, but I can't think of one. So <laughs> you can never think of one. Just make it up. <laughs> it could be Lopan. It, it's Lopan. He, he was killed and then brought back as a ghost and then died again. I was going to pick the beholder, but I couldn't think of a reason why. <laughs> <laughs> just because. <gasps> That's what you would do is just pick the beholder. Yeah. Or the, the monster in the underground. <laughs> <laughs> Giant man-eating Chewbacca's mangy relative. Yeah, Chewbacca's <laughs> grandpa or whatever. Uh, well, oh. that was Big Trouble Little China. Again, it was a listener request, so thank you, Izzy Kissa, on YouTube for leaving a comment and thank suggesting you, Izzy. a movie. He never would have watched it if it hadn't been for you. <laughs> I don't know, man. <sighs> Maybe, but... Giving us these suggestions does force my hand, and I, yeah, I'm really glad we got to do this movie. Josh, are you still doing YouTube? I don't know what's going on with you. Man, I, I, I would like to. I'm trying to figure out what's up with my computer. I am a simpleton trying to figure out a very complex problem. I may be taking like a uh, a hiatus, but I will return at some point. Josh, the, the will views return. never stop. I'd be back. <laughs> Josh, you've covered some Carpenter movies on your channel, right? Yes, quite a few, actually. Yeah, so the listeners, you can check out Josh's channel, Review Inc. with the period, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or you could type Review D-O-O-D. Gotta learn how to spell. <laughs> D-O-O-D. <laughs> D-O-O-D. It sounds like a government agency. <laughs> I do, right? Welcome to D-O-O-D. <laughs> I will take this opportunity. Uh, there is... A fan of ours of this podcast and the Review Dude series, uh, this is his favorite movie. He's been begging us to do this, or uh, begging me to get us to do this. <laughs> so, Garrett, if you're listening, this one's for you, buddy. Awesome. You go, Garrett. You go, Garrett. That's it for this episode of Big Dumb Movie. It's been a lot of fun. Listeners, you want to write in, our email is bigdumbmovie at gmail.com. And you can leave a comment on YouTube. 
You can subscribe to us on YouTube. Our Instagram is Big Dumb Movie Podcast. Why Again, didn't you say I need a raise? My compensation's terrible. Yeah, we don't make any money, <laughs> Wait, Steve. <you> get- <laughs> I applied for monetization on YouTube and it was denied. Oh, <laughs> what? That's a whole nother story. But the biggest thing you, the listeners, can do for us, again, we don't make money, is leave us a written review and five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, specifically that platform, Apple Podcasts. You need an iPhone or an iPad to do it. If you don't have one, borrow someone. So I'm sure you know someone that has one. Just be like, hey, let me let me see that real quick. Or tell them to do it. Open the podcast app. Find our podcast. It's at the very bottom. You can do it. Actually, a lot of listeners have been doing it, so that's very awesome. Thank you guys for that. Tell other people, Corey, I'll give them 50 bucks for a good review. You know, bill them. I think maybe on the next episode, I'll read off some of our more recent uh, written reviews. Uh, I would say the positive ones, but actually they're all positive on that platform. We only get hate on YouTube. So (laughs) anyway, thank you guys for listening. It's been a wonderful time. We love you. Good night. So how about those Disney Star Wars films? Am I right? <laughs> am I right? <laughs> those things are fucking all over the place, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I like them for the most part. I'm not one of these like bring Lucas in to replace them all guys, but definitely. Oh, yeah. the, right. Definitely. I, I there are some points for Curtis. really, really fucking love Force Awakens. And I really, yeah. really hate The Last Jedi. <laughs> Right? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I'm quite in the, like, I despise it camp, but it's definitely not high on my list of Star Wars favorites. I think I think my favorite of all the Disney so far has been uh, Rogue One. Or, Rogue yeah. One's really good, yeah. 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 Uh, I no, If we're going just favorite Disney Star Wars, Han Solo. Yeah, Han's good There's too. There's something about that that's so quaint, small, and it's awesome. Right? Yeah, I was kind of surprised. I didn't see it until it had already been out for a few weeks, and I, I a lot of people had made it sound like it wasn't very good, and then I saw it. It was like, I think this is fine. <laughs> yeah, I uh, caught it on Netflix one one day, and I was totally <laughs> surprised by how good it was.
<laughs> right? We're just riffing on the Disney Star Wars movies. <laughs> well, all that's about to stop because I'm back. God damn it! <laughs> <laughs> oh. Corey's a, a Kylo Ren apologist. I do like Kylo Ren. <laughs> yeah, me too, actually. <laughs> I like the character of Kylo Ren. I don't like what they do with him in Last Jedi. I agree with you, actually. Overall, I like him, but I don't like that the way the arc for that character was written. I think they could have done yeah, it it's, differently. Uh, like it's clear that they were just making shit up from movie to movie, and nobody yeah. had any like uh, talks with any other directors and story points or anything. Yeah, Josh, feels- remember when you used to make Star Wars videos? I do. <laughs> <laughs> How short lived that was! <laughs> I know, right? They were all centered on his fandom for Jar Jar. Yes. <laughs> On second thought, no, not really, no, no.